Hello, I'm Father Gregory Pine, and welcome back to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Uh, if you're still surprised by hearing my voice at the beginning of an episode, uh, that is with just cause, because we've just begun these new episodes as a way by which to deepen some of the insights or follow up on some of the conversations that you would otherwise hear. So yeah, you're still getting great philosophy, great theology lectures recorded on campus at the various universities that have Thomistic Institute chapters or from some of the conferences or retreats that the Thomistic Institute hosts. But we thought that we would do these, these episodes so as to follow up with some of our speakers, specifically on lectures that they have given um, so that we could yeah, ask further questions when the students may perhaps have run out of time. Uh, so in this episode, I'm very blessed, very, very uh, happy to be joined by Sister Jane Dominic from the Congregation of St. Cecilia, the Nashville Dominican Sister. So Saint, thanks so much for joining us, Sister Jane Dominic. Thanks for having me, Father. Cheers. I just said thanks for joining us. I guess I'm referring to the Thomistic Institute in Globo, or maybe there's someone That's else exactly in my room. Right. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Um, there isn't anyone else in my room. Uh, so Sister Jane Dominic, uh, so uh, many have already listened to the lecture which you gave on the narrative meaning of suffering. Uh, but for those who don't know you or who haven't heard, um, you know, who are you? Where are you from? And uh, what are what are you engaged in work-wise, apostolate-wise right now? Okay, sure. So I'm a Dominican sister of St. Cecilia. I'm very happy to be one, feel so blessed to be one. And I right now teach as Associate Professor of Theology at Aquinas College. So Aquinas College was founded in 1961 specifically for the formation of our younger sisters. So it's really a beautiful opportunity to be there um, helping in the formation of our younger sisters, their theological formation specifically. And what else? I don't know. I've been there for a while now, teaching for over 15 years there. So. Great. Sister, um, where did you do your doctoral work? Oh, I did that at the Angelicum in Rome, and I studied primarily, uh, my specialization was in systematic theology. Great. Nice. I, too, am studying systematic theology, although they call it dogmatic theology at the University of Freiburg. But both are good. Uh, both are the same, so never mind. Okay. Um, so here <laughs> we are going to follow up on the lecture that you gave. Uh, at the University of Auburn or Auburn University, for those of you from that university who would be, yeah, just shocked that I would get it wrong in one of those two iterations. My sincere apologies. Um, but you're talking specifically about the meaning of suffering. And in that, you started your lecture with a description of happiness and that kind of Aristotelian or Thomistic rehearsal of the different options that people pose as the end or the goal of life. So I thought maybe just to kind of like uh, deepen some of those insights. You hear a lot of people describe this question or frame this question in different ways. In your research, right, in your engagement with those whom you meet at Aquinas College or elsewhere, how do you typically frame this question? Do you frame it in terms of meaning, in terms of purpose, in terms of happiness, in terms of joy? You hear a lot of people draw fine distinctions as to what's better, what's more, what makes more sense. How do you usually lead off in these types of conversations? Oh, that's an interesting question. I actually just basically start with, you know, what is everyone looking for? Because I think, I guess, I guess, I think I got this from John Paul II that, you know, instead of trying to, um, instead of trying to engage in some kind of philosophical conversation right off the bat, I think what he did was he engaged, he engaged people in terms of their experience. And I think if you look at young people today, really, what do we all want? We want happiness. We want to find the meaning of our life. And then when we find the meaning of our life, that's when we find happiness. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's basically um, 
I think when people hear it or when, they, when the conversation starts, they're like, oh, yeah, that is what I'm looking for. And why do I want happiness? Because then I'll have peace and I'll have joy. All these other things come along as part of happiness. So I think they see happiness as, as the kind of umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think um, no, it's fascinating you mentioned St. John Paul II because I think often of his first apostolates and, you know, how it was often said that, you know, like he led these retreats for young married couples and he was very close, like friends with young married couples. And he was trying to discern or trying to kind of suss out what questions they were asking, not just as a kind of philosophical enterprise, but because he cared. And then in the mm-hmm. course of caring, he himself formulated the questions as part of a broader conversation so that we who are downstream could, could benefit from that. So yeah, asking what people like or what people desire, what people are after in terms of happiness certainly resonates with me. Um, nice. Uh, with, okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) with, uh, (laughs) with respect to the approach that you take in this particular lecture and maybe more broadly, um, you use a lot of stories. Uh, so you, you specifically described it as a narrative approach. Um, yeah, maybe in terms of how you've, how you've seen the problem, how you've set up the problem, or maybe to describe it as a problem already shows how I'm thinking about it. Yikes. Um, but what, <laughs> what, what do you think problem? recommends a narrative approach? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what do you, what do you think recommends a narrative approach to this type of study? Why stories? Well, I think because in a sense, one of the things that connects us most to other people is knowing their stories. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you've ever, you know, I really like icebergs. This has been a theme in my life lately. Um, you know, if you look at an iceberg, just a little bit, so here's the water, right? And it's like 10% of the iceberg is above the water. And then 90% of the iceberg is below the water. And it reminds me of something, you know, like when we see people like being jerks or whatever, (laughs) we, we are only seeing that 10%. And Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, he said something like this. He said, if we could but read the story of another person's life, we would find there so much suffering and sorrow, it would disarm us. And so when I'm turned off by somebody's behavior, that's one of the things I think about. I think about that iceberg. And I think about um, like the story of my own life, you know, how sometimes I'm a jerk and people don't really understand, like, why is she so obnoxious or whatever? Um, that there's a, there's a part of my story, there's actually the, the, the majority of my story, people don't know. Isn't that part of the joy of getting to know people is getting to know their stories, right? Each one of us has a story and, and God is writing it. God is in it. He's, it's, he, he's, our stories are suffused with him if, if we'll let him in. And I think it's story that is really compelling because it appeals to our desire for communion, right? This, this finding in another person, an, an echo of ourselves, an image of ourselves, because Actually, it's really great. One of my favorite translations. So I took one of my favorite classes that I took in Rome was um, given by this uh, Jewish rabbi that they'd fly in from New Jersey. Right? He has to have this great, great accent. You know, he said that that translation. You know, it's terrible. The, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. He said, you know, the better translation that would render the Hebrew properly would be, love your neighbor, for he is as you are. And I think there's something so beautiful about that, right? Like there's this, this commonality that we share, the, the complexity of our stories, our pains, our sorrows, our joys, our hopes, right? Like um, Gaudi Metzpes begins that way. So I think there's, as soon as we 
are given another person's story, what, what is there? There's this invitation to communion, this invitation to law, this invitation to understanding, to compassion, to seeing some of ourselves in the other person, but then also seeing the beauty of the other person for who they are. So there's something, yeah, I think there's something really just inherently attractive about story because it's it's what we're made for, right? You look at the you look at the ancients, you look at um, you look at folk stories, you look at um, legends, you look at epics, right? It, it, they're all stories, and we read them again and again. You know, like we read the Iliad and the Odyssey, even though they were written in the eighth century BC. Why? Because there's something there's something human in them, right? They're, and it appeals to what is human in us. And so I think that's why the same stories will always appeal to us. I, um, <clears throat> for the thesis that I'm presently writing, I'm talking about the mysteries of the life of Christ as kind of, I'm, I'm not doing narrative theology um, because there are a lot of elements of narrative theology which are way beyond my ken. Um, but I'm kind of describing it as Christ lives a whole life so that his whole life can kind of commune with our whole life. So we often talk about the fact that, you know, Christ took a human soul and a human body. He took a human intellect and a human will, human emotions or passions. He took even the co-assumed defects that are attendant upon sin. So we think about it kind of like top-down wise, like Christ took everything of humanity. But I'm trying to describe it in terms of side to side wise, you know. So in addition to a vertical dimension, there's this horizontal dimension that Christ lives salvation history, right? He lives it as, as a narrative kind of drama so that, um, yeah, so that our narrative drama has a place in his. That's to speak about it in a little bit of fluffy terms. But uh, yeah, I, that, it makes a lot of sense to me insofar as we, as human beings, I'm thinking about the way that St. Thomas characterizes human beings by comparison to God, who makes no movements, right? Uh, and angels, who make one movement. We, by comparison, make many movements. So I think in a certain sense, in order to appreciate the full depth of a human person. You have to have a sense for that movement, even if it's only just a snippet, right? Which like short stories can do. They can show you a little bit of movement. And in that little bit of movement, you have a view onto another human life, which, um, yeah, which can kind of give you your own back in a way, which is very beautiful. So, yeah. Definitely. Um, well, and even just, um, I don't really actually think that it's, I don't think it's fluffy. I guess that wouldn't be the word that I would use in speaking about narrative. And it's interesting because actually something you just said reminded me of a conversation I had with Father James Brent, which is, um, and he was talking about this book he was reading at the time by Louis Chardon called The Cross of Christ. And I think, in fact, this is exactly what suffering is all about, right? It's, it's encountering Christ on the cross, like seeing, well, the way Louis Chardon puts it is that Christ wants to live again in each one of us some aspect of his incarnation. Um, that famous English poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins, he would say, Christ wants to live again in us, in each one of us, his passion in a particular, in a particular mode. And so, you know, he has this beautiful line at the end of the Wreck of the Deutschland. He says, let him Easter in us, be a day spring to the dimness of us, pride, rose, prince, hero of us, high priest, our charities, hearths, fire, our chivalries, throngs, lords. I mean, it's this gorgeous stuff. But the whole idea is that Christ wants to live in each one of, a, of us, um, some aspect of his incarnation. That's in Louis Chardon. And um, Father was talking about how you can, we can each ask Christ, what aspect of your incarnation do you want to live again in me? So 
Mother Teresa of Calcutta and her 50 years of spiritual darkness, what did Christ want to live again in her? I thirst, right? This idea that um, his thirsting for souls, and that's what she did. She brought souls to him. And then in Maximilian Kolbe, he lived again those words, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, right? This idea that, you know, Maximilian Kolbe volunteered his life for the other man who had a wife and children. Or in Damien of Malachi, he wanted to live again being among the lepers. And, um, you know, it was funny because I, I, at that time, I had just run across this book. I'm not recommending people read this. It was, it's called The Right. I don't know if you've read it. It's uh, writ, I think it's published in 2006. And, you know, the book starts off with this, um, with The Right of Exorcism. And, it, and it's talking, it just, it's sharing this story of what happened to this particular woman in Italy. I think if I'm, if I'm remembering it properly, there was something like, um, you know, the very beginning of The Right of Exorcism. The, the person there who's obsessed or possessed is there, and their priests are all praying, and they're calling for the intercession of saints to come. So they start calling upon, you know, her baptismal saints, her confirmation saint, patron saints of her family, saints she had a devotion to. And then one of the things that happens sometimes with these exorcisms, from what I understand, not that I've ever been to one, that is that saints who weren't specifically called upon will sometimes come and want to intercede for the person being prayed over. And the right, that book, begins with the story of John Paul II coming. And as soon as John Paul II, so remember John Paul II died in 2005, so as soon as he came into the room to intercede for the woman, the demon inside the woman got all upset and said, oh no, not you, totus to us. But isn't that gorgeous? I think it's so gorgeous. Sorry. <laughs> um, those are my automatic lights. Sorry about that. Um, so, but that whole idea, right, that what aspect of his incarnation did Christ want to live again in John Paul II? But being the son of Mary. And I think that's so gorgeous, right? And so I think it's a great question to ask. Um, what aspect of your incarnation, Christ, do you want to live again in me? And I think if you ask, you know, you might not get the answer right away. It might take like five years or seven years. But one day he'll tell you, and I think it's really beautiful. Like you'll realize um, that's how I, in my particular story, am supposed to glorify you, right? I think um, Elizabeth of the Trinity, she said she was laudem gloriae. She was supposed to be praise of glory. So I think there's something really beautiful. Oh, and St. Therese of Lisieux, who many people love. Um, she said she loved that passage from Revelation 21, where God says, you know, to, to him who conquers, right? Because his life is a battle. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and a white stone upon which a name is written that is known to him alone who receives it. Right? There's something so gorgeous in that, right? It's like, well, in heaven we'll receive this stone and it will have our name written on it, like our identity, who we are to God, you know, who we were meant to be from all eternity. This is what we'll discover. And it'll make so much sense because when we read the story of our entire lives, with him in his presence, it'll be exactly this name. <laughs> so I think it's kind of a, a wonderful thing to think about. All right. I have a follow-up question, which is going to take me too long to enunciate. So I will now spend the next three minutes stumbling through something which will probably not end with a question mark. But here we go. <clears throat> so our Lord, in his life, 
did a variety of things or suffered a variety of things, right? So he was conceived, he was born, he was presented in the temple, he was lost to his parents, he began a preaching mission, he performed miracles, he taught from the mountaintop, he taught on the shore, right? He healed by a touch, he healed by a word, um, he exercised demons, he, you know, predicted his passion, he underwent his passion, right? He suffered, he died, he rose, he ascended, he sits at the right hand of power, and many other things in between. Now, when we ask the Lord what aspect of his incarnation we might choose to live, right? We might supply a certain answer, right? We might think transfiguration. Sounds great. I would love to start glorious, continue gloriously, and end in glory. Um, but that is not necessarily the, like the lot apportioned to us. And I think that in a very mundane way, we experience um, a similar, what would you say, a similar like desire or proclivity for comfort or for the known or for the easily identifiable as good story. So you think about the way that people choose a movie, okay? I don't want to offend anyone who likes Hallmark movies, but I think that the reason that Hallmark movies exist is because people want to feel good at the end of an hour and 37 minutes, right? They just, they just want to feel good. Or like when you're selecting a novel and you're thinking about the fact that you haven't read any Russian literature, but the prospect of reading something from the 19th century, which describes the lives of human beings who lived 6,000 miles away, 150 years previously, <laughs> without any possible consolation stemming from those pages is a little bit oppressive. And so you're like, maybe instead I'll reread Harry Potter, okay? Um, which is great, right? Not against Harry Potter. I'm just saying it's easier, right? It's, it's an easier lift insofar as it's right. closer, insofar as it's warmer, insofar as it's... Right. You know, well, you did you get, so much more out of reading Anna Karenina, for instance. Yeah, so I just read Anna Karenina, and it's mostly sad. And that's the point, you know, because like when you go in for a, for a tougher film, say, right. say you want to watch um, A Hidden Life, right? Say I'm oh, thinking yes. of Terrence Malick films right now, A Thin Red Line or A Hidden Life or The Tree of Life or To the One or whatever, right? They're kind of an investment, right? It's not the type of thing where you sit down, you're like, I think tonight's a Tree of Life night. You know, you, you think about it like the day before, and then you gin up the courage to watch it. And then you're so glad that you did after the fact, because it feels like you've been on a retreat. But still, it wasn't like, it wasn't something that you just swiped right and then found and then selected without a, you know, without a second thought, unless you're a weird person, which is fine. Also, again, totally fine. <laughs> um, so I'm saying, so what I'm trying to set up is this phenomenon that <clears throat> the story, if we were the ones to choose it, would uh, would probably look differently. It would probably be easier. It would probably entail less suffering. And in hindsight, we can recognize the story that has been told in us as good. You know that it's been that it's been willed to us. It's been given to us. It's been bestowed on us. Bestowed upon us by God who loves us. Right by God who who wills for us His glory. But is there like is are there dispositions, habits of the heart that we can cultivate in the present, which open us up to this prospect that make us more willing participants in the story that's being told, rather than constantly being dragged through the story? <laughs> oh, what a fantastic question, uh, Father! I really like what you're what you're asking here because I think I think for, for me in my own personal life, one of the resounding um, one of the resounding elements from the scriptures is. Um, my ways are not your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my thoughts above your thoughts. And, you know, I think this is wonderful. You know, the quintessential sign of, um, of Christianity is the cross. And, you know, so God wants to save the world. And this is the way he chooses to do it, right? Through the, through the death of his incarnate son out of love for us. In this, you know, in this, in this horrifying, ignominious manner. This is how he wants 
to save the world and how he wants, this is how he wants to be remembered, right? This is, this is the Catholic symbol, you could say. And I'm so grateful, you know, that we don't have, um, that we don't just have a, a cross, like, you know, the, in the, um, in the Protestant churches, that we can actually see Christ suffering, right? We can see the nail marks, we can see the crown of thorns, we can see the, see the wound in his side, the, the nail marks in his feet. We can think about the scourges on his back, you know, rubbing against the splinters on the wood. I mean, all those things. And it, we don't understand why this is the way. And if we start to think about why it's the way, we realize, wow, you know what, actually, it's brilliant, right? Because there's he's been winning hearts over to himself for millennia, right? That this is this is the God who wins us over by his love. Not by not by power or riches or you know fame or glory. It's not that kind of it's not that kind of thing, right? It's this it's this tenderness, it's this compassion, this patience, this generosity. Um that he wins us over. And I think it's it's the whole thing of God is the best storyteller. God is the best story writer <laughs> um, that there is, right? There's a there's this, um, I don't know. This is why I think like, you know, somebody was just asking me recently, I was on a retreat with a, with, with a bunch of other sisters. And one of the other sisters said, is anyone else addicted to the novena of surrender? And I, thought, oh, I am, right? Because we have to surrender. We have to abandon. We have to trust that God is a better story writer than I am. And I think um, one of the best, one of my favorite examples is John Paul II. Okay, so, you know, John Paul II, you know, think about it. Here's this, you know, handsome, brilliant, young Polish guy. And, you know, what does he want? What does he want? What are his dreams for himself? Well, you know, there's this really cute Polish girl he'd like to marry and have a family. He wants to be an actor, a play, uh, you know, screenplay writer. He wants to transform Polish culture from the inside. And, you know, these are, these are beautiful dreams. These are noble dreams, right? These are good dreams. These are holy dreams. But they weren't God's dreams for him. God's dreams for him were something so much greater, right? God wanted him to play the critical role in the downfall of communism in the 20th century and to be one of the most beloved popes in all of human history. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this, but when um, when John Paul II died, you know, everyone, you know, everyone is sad, but at the same time, everyone's happy because, you know, he's going into heaven. Now he can intercede for us. But, you know, Rome was like freaking out, right? Because, you know, Rome's kind of a wreck. I mean, love the place, but, you know, it's kind of a mess. You know, they, they so they were, they were thinking, okay, um, Two million people. How are we going to get ready for these two million people to come? You know, they got to get, you know, food, restrooms, traffic. They got to clean out the drains, like all the stuff that all this, you know, back maintenance that they hadn't done. They were like, we got to get all, get all this done before the people all descend upon Rome for John Paul II's funeral. So they were planning for two million people to come. But do you know how many people actually came? Five million people, right? Five million people, the, the most well-attended funeral in all of human history. So, I mean, it's just kind of like a, it just makes me think that, yeah, his ways are better, his, so far above our ways, right? So it's always that idea that whatever we want for ourselves, what God wants for us is something so much greater. You know, the same thing we can see in, in Dominic's life, right? Dominic, what did he want? He wanted to be a martyr. You know, he wanted to go evangelize the Tatars. And then, you know, he thought, okay, I could be martyred. 
But what did God want for him? God didn't want for him to just have the crown of one martyr, but the crown of, a hun- of hundreds and thousands of martyrs, right, in this, in this Dominican order that he founded. That's actually from Paul Hennebush in this wonderful book called, uh, I think, Religious Life, A Living Liturgy. He talks about that, that God purifies uh, our desires. But our desires are a sign of where he's moving us, where he's calling us, how, he, how he's kind of directing our story. But, you know, our desires are, we think, so much smaller than he does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, so as you're talking, I'm also thinking about the sacred humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ because, you know, in these connections that we've been drawing between the story that he tells in his flesh and the story that he tells in our flesh, right, that this is like the nexus, as it were, like the nexus of the drama. And I, yeah, I just wrote a chat. I keep thinking about my thesis because that's all I think about anymore because I only have one thought and it's my thesis. Um, But I wrote a (laughs) chapter about the instrumentality of our Lord's sacred humanity and, um, you know, St. Thomas does a lot of beautiful work on this theme uh, so as to set up this really strong analogy wherein the Lord's sacred humanity appears at the height of all instrumentality. So it's the most intimate, right? It's the, it's the instrument that is assumed most intimately with the artisan. Uh, and it's also the most sublime, right? It's not inanimate. It's animate and beyond animate. It's, you know, it's rational, which is to say, I mean, it's, he takes to himself a human nature. Um, and so when our Lord, well, when, when God, you know, performs the greatest imaginable work uh, as the way by which salvation is to be dispensed on the face of the earth, he takes our Lord's sacred humanity to himself. He takes what is best most closely, which is fascinating. And I think that <clears throat> in a certain sense, like what you're describing is a story of instrumentality, like our Lord is working through each of our lives and in part, right? Our conformity to or our assimilation to our Lord Jesus Christ always entails assimilation or conformity to his sufferings, right? But we, if we can see it in terms of our Lord is taking the highest and assuming into a union which is most intimate, you know, we don't attain to the hypostatic union. That does not lie in store for us, but we participate it, right, by the dispensation of grace so that, like, we in turn become yet more perfect agents or yet more perfect instruments of God's designs of salvation, that we you know, we aren't just saved as, you know, passive recipients thereof, but that we become active agents in its communication and in so doing become more like God, which is ultimately the point, right? Um, yeah, which is kind of wild that we can, yeah. Yeah, I think there's just like a lot of kicking and screaming that goes on in my own <laughs> life and I suspect in the lives of many Christians. So it's, it's wild to think that the point isn't the kicking and screaming, right? Because a lot of times when we set up these analogies, we're like, yeah, so like, you know, we have our plans, God has his plans, he uses his plans to smash our plans. But it's not that, Right. It's a matter of assuming us into a union at the height of our powers, right, which transforms everything and makes it such that his ways become more interior to us than than our ways are in fact are, and in the process transform our ways. I'm babbling. Exactly. No, that's perfect, Father, because that's exactly what happens is that he, you know, like Paul says, you know, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, that he, he, he makes his sentiments our sentiments, right? They weren't our sentiments to begin with, but by his coming to live in us, right? Like, for instance, you think about somebody that you have a really hard time forgiving. And what what do all the saints say is the best advice? That you can't do it on your own. You have to ask God to come and forgive in you. And so you keep begging him, keep begging him. You, you make some progress, you fall back. You make some progress, you fall back. But eventually what happens is that 
he does. He forgive Christ in you forgives the other person. And what do you have this? You have this kind of amazing change of sentiment, right? Like you start to see the other person as God sees them. Um, you don't just see them as a the person who hurt you, but you see you see their weaknesses and their struggles, and you see their maybe their self-defense mechanisms, you see their insecurities, you see their you start to see their pain. And then you then you yeah, then you start to understand, well, this is why God also forgives me. So all those things start to happen, and what what how the transformation the transformation within is that we become more like Christ. He is the one who does it in us. And that is one of the beautiful things. That I, I love the way Eleanor Stump talks about it. She talks about how um, our life becomes intertwined with Christ on the cross, or our stories become intertwined on the cross with him. And in fact, Angelo Foligno, she said in a really striking image, she, she said, the cross becomes the marriage bed. And you know, it's funny, again, that whole theme of how his ways are not our ways. I think our way of thinking, it's always good to make clear what our way of thinking is so that we can be like, oh yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> so our way of thinking is, okay, virtue, okay, virtue, holiness, how does it work? Okay, it's all about um, ascent, right? Like I'm going to go from virtue to virtue to virtue to virtue to virtue and then bam, I'll be there, right? But that's not the way it works, right? We know that God's way is, no, it's this it's just going down, right? Losing more and more, like losing, 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 losing. And then, then you can find what's really important, right? It's when, when we're leveled to the ground, when we have nothing left, that's when we can let Christ be everything in our life. Um, and actually, you mentioned having read Anna Karenina. Uh, that's another one of the Thomistic Institute talks that I've loved giving is, uh, it's called, uh, what is it? What can an adulteress teach us about happiness? Tolstoy's Anna Karenina and the Project of Literature. And what's really beautiful about that story is that it actually has both. It has, um, it's actually two stories. It's, it's there, it's the, Tolstoy almost called it the tale of two marriages, right? So you have the story of, of the marriage of Anna and Karenin, and then you have the story of Levin and Kitty, right? And he's kind of got these two stories going together. But because Tolstoy's brilliant, <laughs> it's actually, he has both a tragedy, Anna's story is a tragedy, right? This movement downward, because she's trying to seek happiness for herself, right? And she, hers seems to be a movement upward, but it's actually a movement downward because she's seeking happiness. Um, whereas, happiness on her terms, right? So that's why it's a movement downward. Whereas Levin is, um, his is actually the comedy, right? And not in the sense of haha, funny, funny, but in the classical sense of comedy, which is a movement upward. And what's Levin seeking? He's not seeking happiness for himself. He's seeking truth and virtue. And so you see how there's this, um, yeah, there's a real richness in, in the way that Tolstoy paints um, these two stories. So it's another way of looking into what story teaches us, but also of how when we, when we do things God's way, we'll find so much more happiness because we'll become what we're meant to be, which is precisely another Christ, right? Hopkins would say that for Christ um, plays in 10,000 faces, love, or lovely in limbs, lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. So I think it's, it's definitely all about giving our lives over to Christ. And it's funny too, because, you know, on this retreat I was just on, we were talking about suffering. The sisters were, um, we're those who were the sisters who've been in final vows for 10 years and beyond. And we have these lovely things called uh, 
for ongoing formation days. And something came up in the conversation that made me think about something that happened to me while I was, um, while I was, I had just, I was, I'd just gone to an audience of, of Benedict the 16th. And, you know, it was a, he had given us these little Easter cards, you know, and it had his picture on the front and it's got Latin on the back. And I'm like, okay, I'll read that later because I don't have to worry about translating it. So anyway, second in this book. And then I picked the book back up and it was just at that time, I don't know if you remember this, but Benedict the 16th had had his childhood home vandalized. He was planning a visit to London, but they were going to arrest him on his arrival to London because of all the, you know, the sex abuse scandals. So it was a terrible, 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 terrible time for Benedict. And um, I'd stuck it in this book of Hopkins. And it was actually part of the wreck of the Deutschland. And on the facing page was this stanza, which I think is so beautiful. It said, it says, five, five. So why five? Okay, why is he talking about this? The wreck of the Deutschland was written for... So Hopkins, sorry, this is, so Hopkins, when he entered the Jesuits, he burned all of his poetry because he thought that poetry was really worldly. And he didn't think that, you know, his new life as a Jesuit, God would want him writing poetry. So he just burned all of his poetry. Now, thank God that his friends had copies of his poems. So he enters the Jesuits. And then what happens is these five sisters were exiled from Germany by the Falk Laws. And so they leave on this ship called the Deutschland. And they end up dying at sea. So they're, you know, they're, they're like martyrs because, of, because they left because of persecution, etc. They couldn't live their religious life. So he's, they died. This happened. The wreck of the Deutschland happened when Hopkins was in the novitiate. And his novice master asked him to write a poem to commemorate their martyrdom. And so here Hopkins is breaking his poetic silence. And he writes this, this masterpiece called The Wreck of the Deutschland. So this stanza I'm about to quote to you is from the center of the Wreck of the Deutschland, where I put the bookmark of, of Benedict XVI. So it said, five, five, right, five sisters die, five, five, the finding and sake and cipher of suffering Christ. Mark, the mark is of man's make, and the word of it sacrificed, but he scores it in scarlet himself on his own bespoken. Right? This is gorgeous, right? Because he's saying five. Five is the number. It's the symbol. It's that which signifies Christ, right? Because of the five wounds. But it also bears his sake. So Hopkins has this whole like philosophy of what sake is. So sake is, is what a being breathes forth into the world. So you just take a simple being like an orange. When you peel the orange and you leave the room, somebody can walk in the room 30 minutes later and still smell the sake of the orange, um, what the orange in its being has breathed out. So five is part of the sake of Christ in the world. Whenever we see five, it should remind us of Christ and his five wounds. So five is the finding and sake and cipher of suffering Christ. Mark, notice he says, the mark is of man's make. And the word of it, sacrifice, right? How do we explain the five wounds? Well, it's, it's Christ's sacrifice. And this is the part that I really love but he scores it in scarlet himself on his own bespoken, right? In other words, he, he marks those he's chosen to be his own with those same bloody wounds, right? So if, if you are suffering, it's Christ drawing you to himself, right? Calling you to share in his passion, 
calling you to come to know him on an ever deeper level. And I, I thought of that specifically in relationship to what was happening to Benedict, right? That, that Benedict is his chosen, right? It's his own bespoken. And so he's allowing, he, he, I think he continues to allow Benedict to share in his passion. So, yeah, I think that that's, yeah, it's, it's part of the key of the whole, of the whole of the, of the Christian life is, is to become united to Christ in his suffering by willingly and trustingly embracing our suffering, right? Like that's what, that's what Christ does on the cross is that he has his total and absolute complete trust and abandonment to the Father in the midst of, of the greatest suffering, the most horrific suffering. And that's, in a sense, how he unites us to himself and to the Father and to the Holy Spirit is, is through uniting us to his suffering in, this, in the way that he chooses for us. So I think, I think we have time for maybe one more question. And I want to follow up on this theme. And I want to follow up specifically, like, what would one say? Ad cor atheistici. So like, when an atheist hears some of these things proposed, I suspect that, you know, there might be a kind of appeal insofar as it speaks to an experience which the atheist has wanted unriddled for him or herself. But I suspect that <clears throat> by virtue of training or by virtue of trauma, some of it sounds terrible, right? Some of it sounds like an abusive relationship because I think there are some distinctions that need to be made or some relationships that need to be disambiguated when it comes to, like, one, the communicability of suffering and then, two, the agency with which it is communicated. For one, okay, I think there are a lot of people in the 21st century who are cons you know, concerned that um, their suffering be seen as unique, incommunicable, unassailable, right? And I think a lot of this is bound up, too, with... I think there's a widespread despair in the 21st century um, on, like, heroism or regarding heroism. I think a lot of us feel like we can no longer be heroes, like the heroes are all played out, but, it, but at least we can be a victim of a certain sort, and that affords us a kind of power in the public space. And in order to, you know, defend victimhood, as it were, one needs to cling to suffering, right? Or one needs to cling to whatever it be, injustice or trauma or et cetera, et cetera. These are very complicated stories which involve, you know, very complicated factors, and I don't try to sum them all up in one broad sweeping claim. But I think that there's, that there's like widespread skepticism that suffering can be shared because it's like everyone suffers in their own way, and as a result of which we just can't make suffering comparisons. If anyone ever says to you, you know, like, know how you're feeling, the instinctual response is you couldn't possibly. Um, and then the other thing is, Whenever we talk about Christ like sharing his suffering with us or affording us a share in his suffering, I think a lot of people just go straight to the fact, all right, we're talking about an omnipotent God who could save us in any way he saw fit. So why this mode when this mode seems to be absolutely terrible? And if you are suggesting to me, you know, that, that he is exercising some kind of positive agency in the whole equation, then it's utterly reprehensible. And I think you see a lot of these arguments with like the new atheists in the 80s and 90s, and it kind of gets a little bit dried up in the 19 or in the, in the aughts. But, but there's still like there's some there's still some remnant of skepticism or there's still some remnant of pushback. And I think it's in part because of these two factors. So what would you say, you know, to the to the skeptic who does not think that suffering can be shared or um, to the atheist who thinks that that God's agency of a certain sort, like maybe just as a as a kind of final uh, passing thought or as a final summation, um, what what would you say about about sharing about communion 
about our Lord's work in it. Wow. Okay. Uh, that's a super packed question. Not promising I can answer in the last few minutes here, Father. <laughs> that's an amazing question. You take your, you take your time. Yeah. Well, you no know, hard stops. It's the okay. Thomistic Institute. Thanks, Father. So my first impulse, of course, is to answer the question with a story. So this is actually a real story. Nice. I think <laughs> you can find it online. I wish I could give you um, a more specific, like, anyway. But basically, Father Dan Rehill is the one who told us this story. That um, this there was an atheist man. He was like from some kind of, I don't know, he was successful in his line of work, kind of a workaholic. He was married to a woman and, um, you know, she kind of complained that he was a workaholic, not really sensitive. He was an atheist. She might have been some kind of, she might have been some kind of Christian. She was not Catholic. And they had wanted a child, wanted a child, wanted a child. They finally had a child. And um, their son was two years old. And he started to get, he got this fever. And he, so they bring the child to the hospital. And the doctor says, okay, he's got a fever. It's some kind of infection, but just let it run its course. He's going to be fine. He doesn't need to be admitted. So they send him back home. And the guy's like, Okay. Um, and so they go back home and the fever goes up to 105. So they bring the two-year-old, you know, poor baby boy is suffering so much. They bring him back. And of course, the mother is suffering, the father is suffering, right? And the father's like an atheist. He can't make sense of this. He, um, they bring the child back to the hospital. And I think the, 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 the doctor says, no, 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 he's, it's going to be fine, right? So basically the child is sent back home and the child ends up dying. The man who's an atheist, of course, just from the, from the atheistic standpoint, is just livid with the doctor. He wants to go and kill the doctor. So his wife is, is there, and she's holding the baby in her arms, and, um, or the two-year-old. And the, this man, you know, he's got his, his arm wrapped around his wife as they're crying over their baby, and um, who's just died. And the man is filled with anger at this injustice, right? That this doctor is incompetent, et cetera, et cetera. But at that moment, what happens to him is he is like, he like is, now this is the part that sounds crazy, <laughs> but he's swept up into heaven along with his two-year-old son's um, soul. So his soul leaves his body, his son's soul leaves his body, or he has this out-of-body experience. So, And basically he, he goes up into heaven with his son, and he's there in front of, of God, Jesus, not sure. So there he is. He's in front of our Lord and there's his son and his son is like looking around and his son is so happy. Right. And, and God asks him, he said, um, he said, first of all, the man is overwhelmed. I think by God's love, right? He's overwhelmed by by being in the presence of God, and he senses the love of God in a way that he never had sensed it in his entire life. And I think that's part of what's at the heart of atheism, is, is this, um, this lack of love that's, that's in our world today. And I think technology is no small part of that. Sin is no small part of that. Our fallenness is no small part of that, right? This is part of being in a fallen world, that we experience a lack of love where we should experience the presence of love. So he experiences the presence of love of God himself and he sees his little boy and our Lord asks him, do you want your son back? If you want your son back, I'll give him to you. 
And this man is kind of overcome, you know, and he, but he keeps looking at his son. He sees, he's like, my son has never been this happy. I've never seen my son this happy. Like, I don't think I could take him away. I can't take him away from here um, because he's so happy. I couldn't stand to do that to him. Um, and then there's something like, I don't know, the Lord says something to him that, that life is all about self-sacrificial love. Life, oh, <laughs> life is all about self-sacrificial love. And so the man decides that he will leave his son. He'll, he'll let his son just be with the Lord. And so he's sent back down to earth and he finds himself in the same situation and he starts comforting his wife and he starts like, his friends start coming over and they start, he starts talking to his friends and, and he's has this amazing peace and joy about him. And people are like, who are you? We don't know who you are. And so he has this, he's, his life is transformed by this, this experience of suffering that comes together with an experience of God's love. And so I, there, and it was, it wasn't even like he was open, but that grace broke in. And so now actually that's one of the things that he's spending his life doing is, is talking to people about the reality of God because this happened to him. So I think one of my prayers, because I do pray for, I do pray for atheists, unbelievers, those who are struggling to come to know the love of God, is I pray precisely for this, that, that the grace of God will break in, right? In, in, in a way that only he knows how, though he knows best, right? Because he knows their stories and he knows how he wants to come into their stories. Um, so I think, yeah, I don't know if that's the answer. I mean, I don't know if that, if you count that as an answer to the question, Father. <laughs> Hey, insofar as the question was posed as a as an open invitation to further, yeah, speculation and or encouragement, uh, then yes, that is certainly an answer. I'm 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 right now in German language school, and I just learned the difference between two verbs, one of which entails a single correct answer, and the other of which does not. You know, it entails a variety of responses, and it was like looking at those two verbs that I realized that there's a similar reality, you know, in life. But I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it because I don't think about language unless I'm trying to struggle through a very low level of another one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. So insofar as my question, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, so you made me think of this. You know, um, Peter Seavold, remember that famous interviewer of, of Ratzinger, um, he asked him, how many ways are there to heaven? And I mean, you know, Catherine of Siena would say, well, there's only one way. The way is Christ, right? He's He's the way to heaven. And so, Christ, if you are the way, then all the way to heaven is heaven. Because right? it's all about being with Christ. But Ratzinger said, how many ways are there to heaven? As many as there are people. Right? And so both answers are right. And in the sense of those two German words, right? There's one right answer. The way to heaven is Christ. And yet there are as many ways to heaven as there are people. Because each one of us has our own way to walk with Christ. Our own story. Um in which our lives are entwined with his. So, and the way is the way of the cross. That's the part we don't like, but it's also the way of the resurrection. So, yeah, let him Easter in us. There you go. So we'll, we'll afford the last word then to Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, so thanks very much, Sister Jane Dominic, for, uh, for taking the time and for yeah, helping us to, to think well about to deepen insights, which, uh, yeah, have been percolating since having listened to your lecture. So thanks so much. Thank you, Father.
Yeah. And to you, the listener, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Thomistic Institute podcast. Uh, if you haven't yet, please do subscribe to the podcast on whichever app you use to listen. And then check out ThomisticInstitute.org for more upcoming lectures, which may be in a region near you, uh, for conferences and retreats to which you can apply, and other good programming, the likes of which I don't recall slash I'm not involved in, but I trust that it's there. So know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us, and we'll catch you next time on the Thomistic Institute podcast. Cheers. Cheers.